Hello and welcome to the sixth season of The Hive Podcast, the series that inquires into our relationship with one another, with technology and the natural world. Join me, Natalie Nahai, as we dive into the complex and challenging questions of our time and explore how some of the great minds are forging new and creative paths forward. For more information and resources about today's guest and the topics we explore, you can visit natalinahai.com forward slash The Hive Podcast. Thanks for listening and I hope you enjoy the show. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Tom Chatfield, a best-selling author and philosopher of technology, whose new book, How to Think, explores the habits and practices that are fundamental to clear thinking and effective study. From the ethics of AI and tech in deep time to the philosophy of fake news and what it means to think well, Tom's work explores how we might improve our experiences and understanding of ourselves, of one another, and of technology. His non-fiction books exploring digital culture, including How to Thrive in the Digital Age and Live This Book, have appeared in over 30 languages, and his critical thinking textbooks and online courses, developed in partnership with Sage Publishing, are used in schools and universities across the world. Tom's also a successful novelist, and his debut book, This is Gamora, published in 2019, was a Sunday Times thriller of the month, it was shortlisted for the CWA Steel Dagger for Thriller of the Year, and it went on to win France's 2020 Prix Douglas Kennedy for the year's Best Foreign Thriller. I've had the pleasure of sharing several stages over the years with Tom, and with each event, I've come away feeling inspired and awed at his ability both to understand and to vividly convey the complex and nuanced ways in which you might more richly engage with the world. This was a really fun and interesting conversation for me, and I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Tom, thank you so much for talking with me today. It's such a pleasure to be in conversation again with you. Likewise, thank you for having me. So I'd like to start by asking you the question that I typically open the conversation with, and that's to ask what you think is happening in the global human psyche right now, if we can use that frame. Ah, so we start with a nice easy one. <laughs> I mean, I guess there's so many themes you could pull out. I, I think, I hate to generalise, because one of the features of the crazy last two years we've had, I think, has been that, you know, the pandemic situation and associated crises have really displayed just how different people's lives are within the same country, you know, within the same context often, mm. based on, on where they're at, based on their levels of privilege, mm. based on whether they're old or young. So, you know, you, it's very easy to say something like, oh, you know, this is a great leveller, you know, a virus doesn't know or care how old you are or what colour your skin is and so on. But unfortunately, the reverse is very much the case in that, you know, the experience I've had of the last 18 months as, as a kind of white, middle-aged professional living, living in Britain, you know, who's got an established career, who's got a family, who's lucky enough to have a house with a garden, I live in a different world to someone in the same country as me mm. who has precarious work or ill health or is a, a full-time carer without kind of backup and resources or who works in an industry that hasn't managed to you know, sustain itself financially and, and so on and so on. So I think, 
you know, we've we've been living in this world where we've all had very profoundly different experiences of a common crisis. And that's a very strange dynamic. I think one of the one of the most powerful things it's done is probably force people to to reconsider a lot of things they took for granted. Mm. And I guess for most people there's probably been an audit of what matters. Because when you're confronted by the sort of simultaneous kind of horror and banality hmm. of of lockdowns, you know, if you're not in, in an acute situation yourself, you're both kind of bored and nervous and anxious. And the question is, well, you know, what matters? On the one hand, what gets me through the day to day? But on, on the other hand, what of all the things I used to do or want to do or hope to do, what of those still stand up to the kind of spotlight to the scrutiny of this strangeness. Mm. So, you know, people who used to travel for business find themselves saying, well, business travel, it was always a luxury, wasn't it? You know, I mean, it was nice, but blatantly we didn't have to do it. But I think people are also saying to themselves, for example, you know, delivering food, looking after people in the hospital and cleaning the streets, that's, that's work that really matters. That's work that keeps a society going. And that's what we need when we're in a profoundly difficult situation mm. moving money around or you know saying clever things for money this is sort of optional i think the the importance of work and the importance of what people do in a fundamental sense has been sort of you know quite abruptly wrenched away sometimes from how much you get paid to do it and how much money there happens to be attached to it so i'll be really interested to see you know in the future as everybody is i guess what things do and don't you know, recede to some kind of before state. I I guess for a lot of people, the world now contains a big before and after. We're not in the after yet, Mm. but we tend to see things this way. You know, we're living through something that we're going to remember, and probably the stories we tell about it will have a much higher degree of certainty than, than what we're experiencing now. We'll probably pretend that all kinds of things were obvious. This was never going to be the same, but this was. This changed, but this wouldn't, you know... The last thing I suppose I'd say is that I feel that it's people's purposes and relationships that sustain them. There's long been a a literature that kind of draws on people's end-of-life thoughts about their regrets. And and I suppose the point of this Mm. has always been that most people at the end of their lives don't say, goodness me, I wish I had loads, I wish I'd had more money, I wish I'd spent more time working working incredibly hard, I wish I'd spent more time on these things. Mostly they tend to say that it was the relationships, doing things for other people, the caring, and the really kind of purpose and value-driven stuff that they wish they'd done more of. Leaving aside the fact that if people genuinely don't have enough of something, that's pretty catastrophic. And so I, I would like to think that a lot of people has been asking these these questions and find that the answer is is people and purpose, and that if I'm being optimistic, maybe there's more opportunities for people to be to be opened to to various kinds of change they weren't open to before, to taking less for granted, to reassessing their priorities. But that's me putting my sunny hat on. You know, there's I mean maybe I'm being ridiculously <laughs> glib and over optimistic because. You could say a lot of very dark things about how deep inequalities in societies and the world have been kind of nakedly exposed by a crisis, which which has left some people fairly comfortable and some people just in, in absolutely desperate situations um, and, and feeling desperately under-supported. 
But I think that exposure is so necessary in order to be able to start to reckon with the structural challenges that we face if we are going to create a society in the face of climate disasters and migration and poverty, to create a society which does support its most vulnerable members. If you think of it from like a psychotherapeutic frame, one can only work with the trauma once you actually come face to face with it, once you open the door and you're willing to encounter it head on. And and I think in some ways, as brutal as this has been, it's perhaps a stronger place from which to start to rebuild something because if we're faced with something so bleak, then my hope is that there is no other option but to lean into it. Of course, that's also quite a, an optimistic perspective. Well, no, but let's, but let's be optimistic for one moment because I think one, one thing I strongly feel is that if we'd gone back you know, two years and you and I had had a chat and said, look, let's pretend there's going to be a massive um, global pandemic of some kind and let's just play the game of wondering what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. Now, we could have speculated about breakdowns in civil society, about what people would and wouldn't be prepared to do and so on. I think if I had said, well, look, what I think is going to happen is that by and large, hundreds of millions of people, and especially kind of younger people who are less vulnerable to a disease, are going to make extraordinary sacrifices. They're going to completely voluntarily, you know, freeze their way of life and give up most of the things they normally do. And societies are going to do this, you know, for a year plus. And there's not going to be kind of wide anarchic outbreaks of disorder. There's not going to be kind of governments overthrown. You might have said, well, Tom, you're being, you're being wildly unrealistic. Well, you know, human nature's yeah. not like that. <laughs> Most people have been extraordinarily, quietly decent, especially those in the most terrible circumstances. People have proved themselves remarkably good at quietly giving up an awful lot of stuff they took for granted on behalf often of others, because very broadly speaking, mm. the young have made sacrifices so that the so that the old can live, you know. Yeah, and yeah. maybe some aspects of this bode well for, you know, collective systematic crises of the sort that, as you say, climate change of the sort that mass global migrations of, of border insecurities, you know, these these are shared problems. And that means the only solutions are shared solutions. And some of the solutions to do with some people giving up some stuff. Um, and that is less unthinkable. You know, there is a hard but powerful case to be made for certain kinds of optimism, that people are willing to embrace certain kinds of sacrifice if they understand kind of why and how, and if they really see what it means to keep a society going by being prepared to take radical steps. Mm. I think part of that also is the way in which we choose our leaders, because obviously if you have the the head of a country or heads of state acting in a way that goes against the sacrifices they're demanding of others, and I think, you know, there, there is a case to be made for the economic barriers to living one's life. Like, so for instance, living in Spain, people were getting fined thousands of euros for going out and breaking curfew. Um, quite a few of my friends got got caught. Luckily, they weren't fined. But there were a lot of invisible barriers to freedom that curtailed people's lifestyles, as well as kind of the, the, the volunteering yeah. of, of of staying in and what have you. But I think there's also that case to be made for choosing our leaders more, more wisely. So to choose leaders 
that have integrity, that do model the behaviours they're requiring from the rest of the citizens. And maybe that's also a good thing. Maybe that's Maybe that's the way in which to, to create a more equitable society. I think it's no bad thing to say that one of the few things we can say with certainty is that, you know, policies aligned with the science around vaccination are policies that save lives. Hmm. You know, the, the denial of reality is a strategy that ends in manifest disaster and you know, the global scientific effort around vaccines, there's so much that's been so controversial and so fraught. And and there's so much data that I think is genuinely unclear about what approaches do and don't work. But things like vaccination are beautifully clear in their efficaciousness as a kind of social endeavour, as an intervention, as a sort of shared global scientific research effort. And I think, you know, that definitely points away towards models of leadership and governance that embrace the evidence and to some degree that constructively that constructively embrace uncertainty that that, that speak a sort of language that's that's tolerant of uncertainty and ambiguity and able to to talk within it rather than pretending pretending and denying again don't end very well so that brings us very nicely to your new book, which has just come out this month, How to Think, which I found very thought-provoking. And it frames critical thinking in the context of the events that we've been talking about, of the pandemic um, and this last period or so. So from a personal author's perspective, I'd actually really like to ask you what prompted you to write the book, because obviously this is an area which has long interested you, and whether the writing of this book was also a way in which to, to process and respond to the events of COVID-19 as they unfolded. Yeah, so this is, the, this is the third book I've written about critical thinking. It's about my 10th book overall, but you know, <laughs> I, 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 love, I love writing about critical thinking. I love trying to be useful to people, to, to give people tools, to give people good questions. And in a way, yes, the pandemic was this almost this astonishing kind of challenge and opportunity. You know, I, I had a book to write, um, trying to write a sort of slim, useful, practical, accessible book about thinking skills. And I thought to myself, if all this stuff I'm talking about, about scepticism and evidence and, and reason, if, if this really is so good, and I keep banging on about how important it is, then... I really need to be able to demonstrate that it is actually, if you like, practically useful for helping me and others cope with appalling, profound uncertainties in the present moment. Mm. And so I'm going to write it almost as a kind of diary or journal. I'm going to write it in real time. I'm going to put myself on the page, not as a guru with answers, but as someone who doesn't have answers, who's got questions, who's bewildered and uncertain by global events. And I'm going to say to my readers, look, when you read this, you will know much more than I did at the time, given the delays involved in publishing a book and so on. You know, you'll be a year ahead of me. So I'm going to put on display my own attempt to work methodically through certain questions. Where is this pandemic going? What can and can't we learn from this evidence why do people believe certain things what is it reasonable to believe how can we best deal with our own irrationalities and fears and biases i'm going to put that on the page and i'm going to talk about me and global events and i want you the, the reader 
to spot the moments when I'm wrong, when I fall into error, when I get things mixed up. I want to preserve that on the page because I want to try and show that in a sort of modest way, it is possible to try to put all this stuff into practice. And the thing a lot of books get wrong is just making it all too neat and tidy. Mm. So, so I say towards the start of the book, what for me is just a really fundamental psychological and philosophical point, which is that we experience the world in two ways, which to some degree are in competition. There's the cloud of uncertainty that we experience as we go through time from moment to moment, the immediacy of our impressions. And then there's the ways in which collectively and individually we remember and resolve these experiences into patterns. Mm. And when we resolve stuff into patterns, you know, we, we do amazing things. We build astonishing edifices of understanding and explanation together. You know, we, we come up with amazing stuff. But we also, in a way, lie. We oversimplify. We pretend it was obvious which way things would work out. We put on our you know, 2020 hindsight goggles. And to, to write a textbook about critical thinking and evidence while trying not to impose the distorting certainties of hindsight was, was a lovely challenge. And, and I really hope I've captured something of that. And together with the fact that it's me, you know, because you often write textbooks and you, or, you know, a book and you sort of sound like you're a kind of omniscient third-person narrator, like you're standing on a mountain <laughs> proclaiming things. And I just want to say, look, now I'm a 39-year-old white British guy who's very lucky in a lot of ways. I, I care about critical thinking and I write books and I want to share some, some stuff with you, but it's coming from me at this moment in time with these limitations. And I would very strongly encourage you to think about what I've missed, to think about your own experiences. Don't trust me. Let me help you question everything, including my claims. And actually, I'd, I'd highlighted one of the things that you'd written. It was so beautiful in its simplicity of, of kind of capturing what you're drawing towards, which is human understanding is always both provisional and belated in the sense that we make meaning retrospectively and that we create stories to join the dots in hindsight. We do, and we have this. We have this obligation, which I think is a moral obligation, to continue to update our understanding in the light of new knowledge. Mm. It doesn't mean we can't understand everything. I mean, you know, randomised control trials and so on are just unbelievable mechanisms for creating the kind of conditions within which it's possible to really learn very powerful, generalizable things. Mm. But nevertheless we have this obligation to update our understanding in the light of new knowledge, to seek refutation, to put our ideas to a test. And I, I really, you know, in a way, global events, I think, have just shown that these are not abstract, hand-waving, scientific imperatives only fit for people to talk about in labs or seminars. They are principles that have very direct, tangible impacts on people's lives, on people's hopes, on, on people's dreams, on, on the stuff of our daily existence and uh, you talked about holding leaders to account and i think you know we do this through facts and truth and knowledge and investigations and evidence we do this by understanding these things and by to some degree trying to insist that people are accountable mm. to to reality rather than to their own fake engineered version of it and of course that's one of the great conflicts we've seen over the last years these sort of parallel 
worlds of lies mm. being maintained in order to serve particular agendas. Mm. And actually, one of the things that struck me most about your book and indeed about your approach more broadly that I've seen throughout the years is the invitation you give to whether it's the reader or the audience member to pause and question both your claims and the interpretations you make. And you say this very explicitly in the book and you request that they keep asking what it means to embrace rigour in the face of complexity and to put honest doubt at the heart of your learning. That phrase that you write, it's such a poignant thing to, to point towards because in the last few years, I've become increasingly attentive to and saddened by the narrowing of discourse, the impoverishment of discourse that we're seeing across public arenas, whether in mainstream media or social channels. And so to find someone explicitly invite active, deliberate participation in such a way that is questioning and constructive is both a relief and a rarity. So why is this practice of pausing so important and how can we begin to do that, perhaps in the context of social media exchanges where technology encourages that kind of fast, I don't know, emotion-driven, impulsive response? Yeah, so I mean, I've written and thought a lot about technology and cognition over the last decade now, and it's just become clearer and clearer to me that it all begins with the pause. If you don't pause for second thoughts, then all you will ever have is first thoughts. And these first thoughts will often be very affective, driven by intense emotion. And of course, a lot of the ecosystems and business models of social media are predicated upon emotional intensity. And the mechanics of sharing and virality are very broadly speaking driven by intensity of emotional response rather than faithfulness to reality. Mm. You know, about the least viral thing I could possibly stick on social media is this is complicated, I'm not quite sure what to think. Yeah. Or, you know, <laughs> hang on a minute. And this is this is incredibly obvious stuff, but I, I quote the the author Robert Poynton, who's written beautifully about the power of a pause. Mm. I like the idea of pausing precisely because it isn't the impossible demand that we kind of disconnect and go offline. I think there was a very sort of vogue phase for encouraging people to disconnect and go offline and kind of go up mountains and put their phones away and so on. And while I'm very sympathetic to the impulse behind that, I think for most people, you know, and especially people who need it most, the idea of putting your phone away and going off grid and so on, it's not possible. You can't do that. Your employer won't let you. Your life won't let you. It's, it, it's a it's a kind of luxury option, like mm. going on a silent yoga retreat for kind of a month or something. You know, it's a, it's a lifestyle privilege rather than something useful. Taking a small pause, giving yourself permission to think twice, giving yourself permission to doubt, and it's an enormously good impulse when it comes to social media because it's such an affect-driven realm. It can get so overwhelming so fast. And when we respond fast in these situations of emotional intensity, we're very vulnerable. We're very vulnerable to all kinds of sort of mental shortcuts or heuristics like availability and confirmation, you know, we where or sticking with our tribe. And we can have very intense feelings of kind of shame of self-censorship. And mm. now these are extraordinarily difficult and fraught questions. The, one of the reasons I love this phrase, honest doubt, is it is possible, I believe, to, if you like, hack a lot of this discourse by saying, rather than this is what I think very strongly, or this is what you ought to think, saying, I'm not sure, what do you think? Or, I'm not sure, where could I go for good quality information? Turning a closed 
shouting match into a series of open and empathetic questions. Mm. There's limits to this, of course. You know, if someone else's position is one of violent intolerance of me or people like me or another class of person, that is outside the pale of empathetic discourse. That's that's a different kind of thing. But I think there's this very large and important space where honest doubt and honest questions can be can be really powerful and liberating because they can give us permission to have second thoughts and to not know and to not have a kind of strong response or, or not have to just say that we believe in a certain orthodoxy. Mm. And, you know, there's a classic observation, which among others, the philosopher Daniel Dennett has made, which is that if you, if you disagree with someone or if you're entering into a debate, one of the, the best ways to do this with integrity is to first of all try and state someone else's position in a form that they would agree is is reasonable and strong, mm. and then to outline where you may agree with them and have some kind of a common ground. And only then, after you've done that, to explain where and how and why you may disagree with them, or be uncertain and be seeking a mutual line of investigation. And you don't do this just because it's nice and you don't want to offend anybody or you don't have any opinions. You do this because if you're genuinely interested in, in trying to work out what's going on and understand things, you really do need to try and encounter other people's ideas or new ideas in their strongest possible form. And you need to put your own strongly held ideas to a meaningful test. Mm. It's no good repeating slogans or kind of beating the drum for an orthodoxy. That may or may not be you know, a righteous thing to do, but it's, it's unpersuasive and it, it doesn't create any of these kind of, I think, empathetic or compassionate space, spaces um, where hopefully, maybe sometimes we can, we can learn to understand each other a little better and understand what's going on around us a little more rigorously. Mm. I think one of the things that saddens me quite a lot, especially because I was um, an early adopter of Twitter, is the ways in which a lot of these channels and platforms have come to be used in the last five or six years. And I remember originally when the first when my first book came out back in 2012, I was so excited to share these ideas. And you could actually jump into debates with people and there'd be this sort of benefit of the doubt type of approach given. So if someone said something and the tone seemed a bit off, you could have a conversation about it. And, and now I find it increasingly difficult to square the kinds of simple statement-driven one-line piece of content that so prolifically populates social channels with the reality, which is increasingly complex and interconnected. So you end up with these strap lines, people giving um, statements that maybe don't invite conversation that are then, I guess, amplified because they are uh, emotionally provocative and therefore they get greater engagement. It, that, I find that really difficult because I I don't feel that I'm in a position where I can take to Twitter and just launch a statement out there and, and feel that that's okay <laughs> because there are so many more questions than we have answers and it doesn't seem that statement making and closing of doors can generate the kind of intellectual inquiry and debate that we need in order to find ways to move forward, to come together, to, to tackle a the problems that we'll only be able to tackle if we're able to find common ground first. What what do you think about how we can, maybe we can't use these platforms in this way, maybe it's, it's just too difficult, but what do you think about ways in which to engage generatively 
in intellectual inquiry and to open those doors again? How can we do that in this digital age? I think, first of all, it feels clear to me that in some way the complexity and the kind of sloganeering simplicity go together. Mm. That when you face deep and disturbing complexities, when you face wicked problems, brandishing slogans as solutions is very appealing. And so, you know, on one side of the political spectrum, we see conspiracy theories, you know, QAnon, 5G conspiracy theories and so on. These have gained huge numbers of adherents, not because they are remotely able to explain or account for what's going on in the world, but because they are cult-like movements in which people who feel that the world is not being run for their benefit, is being controlled in opaque and mysterious ways by hypocritical or malevolent people and elites. They can, you know, say that they've seen through this. They know the truth is that there's a conspiracy, that that bad things are afoot, that they are enlightened. They can, in their faith and their companionship, they can find solace and so on. It's religious and cult-like. But of course, on one level, at least emotionally, they're not wrong in that it's certainly arguably true that much of what goes on is being organised and run for the benefit of quite small numbers of people in quite shadowy and manipulative ways. That's basically what the internet is, you know, today. You know, the modern internet business model is to some degree one of surveillance Mm. and one of manipulation. It's many other things as well, of course. But these kind of atavistic feelings of alienation and exclusion and frustration... And, and fear and terror in the face of complexity on all sides, they, they manifest themselves in these kind of slogan-like conspiracies or cults or, or faith-like formats. And, you know, one of the ways of pushing back against this is to remember that there are spaces and people and models of dialogue that are much richer and more compassionate than this. We've seen, you know, closed social media groups and things arising, which often are simply better in terms of the time and attention people can give each other. We see plenty of, you know, kind of publications and entities devoted to to truth. Really, the paradox is that there's never been more good information in the world as well as bad. (laughs) There's never been a more kind of dazzling array of tools at our fingertips to help us understand what's going on. But it's never been harder, perhaps, for it to gain traction politically because whole movements and segments of society and groups of people have sealed themselves off into kind of identities and frames of reference that, that aren't interested in various kinds of dialogue. And it's easy to stand up, you know, to stand on the sidelines and end up feeling a little bit kind of ineffectual and unrealistic and say, oh, wouldn't it be nice if we just got along, uh, you know, and that is that is no way to solve any problems. I, I think to some degree it's very important to recognise that a lot of the anger and frustration and divisions that are expressed are at least indirectly the result of various inequalities and exclusions mm. and structural problems with societies and that it is by talking about and redressing those problems in terms of income, in terms of structural inequality, in terms of work and the dignity of people's lives and the the ways in which they are or aren't able to find and lead meaningful, happy, fulfilled lives as people whose 
identities are respected and so on. You know, we, we're not going to solve these problems on the internet or by social media. And we really, I think, shouldn't pay that much attention to much of what's said. It, tech companies, I think, have begun belatedly to realise both that they bear some responsibility for this, but also that they are in the unwelcome but inevitable position of being gatekeepers mm. who have to make decisions and they have to throttle this stuff and what works broadly speaking is silence is kicking trump off twitter is throttling the number of influencers because almost invariably these kind of ripple like effects of influence and you know untruth or disruption they they come from small numbers of influential actors and so on um it's controversial but Silence is is a golden thing. In the larger scheme of things, I write books called things like How to Think, not because I think writing a book is an especially miraculous intervention, but because I have a great deal of confidence that in the right context and given the right tools, people can, broadly speaking, articulate their own needs and positions very well. And very clearly, and it's a very bad idea to patronise them. Mm. One of the great lessons of technology and the internet is just how protean human nature is. That is, just how different people are in different circumstances. If you create the kind of conditions online or societally in which people feel bullied or patronised or excluded, then the behaviours they produce can be very destructive and very lowest common denominator and very negative. Under different conditions, if you give people the tools and the space and the time and the respect, they can articulate very eloquently where they're coming from, what they need, and they can have good conversations. Universities, education systems, in informal educative areas, platforms and forums for these things, groups, I have tremendous hopes that what can be built there can be empowering in the best sense and maybe above all that we just need to take if you like an ecological approach and by an ecological approach i mean it's not one platform it's not one thing it's it's the nature of the kind of information ecosystems we inhabit and discuss things in the media ecosystems and how that fits into you know our societies and their kind of regulatory structures and and their governance structures, and so on. If you create an ecosystem that is hospitable to informed and reasoned and respectful debate, you will get some reasoned and respectful debate. If you feed the beast, if you predicate your actions upon the lowest common denominator, whipping up dissent and controversy and showing contempt for truth and evidence and science and reason... Then, then you will reap what you have sown. Mm -hmm. And I think, interestingly, one of the things that you point towards when we're dealing with the thorny issue of disinformation or perhaps just the sea of information that's hard for people to pick out the elements which are factually correct versus those that are effectively powerful, you talk about how we might use the principles of intelligent openness to tackle some of these problems. Can you talk a bit about this and how we might better deliver or digest information? So I've borrowed that phrase from the philosopher Honora Anil, who gave the wreath lectures in the UK, uh, you know, some, some years ago now, and has subsequently written alongside others for the Royal Society, among 
others about what she calls intelligent openness. The basic idea here is that just being open and transparent is not good enough and is sometimes counterproductive. So we often talk about transparency as a sort of almost by definition good thing. And I'm going to dump all my data, I'm going to show my working and that's, that's good, transparency is good. She makes the point that given that we are in such an information-rich world that we're suffering from information overload, intelligent forms of transparency and openness are those that contextualise data and information in a meaningful and useful way that present it in kind of formats and styles that allow it to be reused, that allow people to go to original sources and trust the provenance of information and claims and triangulate and test them for themselves. And this, this applies to news and statistics alike. It's this basic idea that trust and authority and, and reliable information in the digital age is, is not just about nominal transparency and openness or data dumps. It's above all about being able to trace the provenance of information for yourself back to an original source or outlet and to your own satisfaction verify and triangulate it with other sources and that being part then of, if you like, any kind of an intelligently transparent or open setup is about data, you know, that is reusable, contextualised, attributed, trustworthy and, and useful. I love this word useful. I'm, I'm a bit obsessed with it. <laughs> it's just, you know, it is stuff useful. It's a kind of UX question, a user experience question. You know, there's all this great stuff you can put in line. There's all this great stuff you can build. But actually, what is people's experience of it? You know, you can build a great site. You can put great tools on social media. But if people don't use them, if the design doesn't nudge them to use them, they're just window dressing. Mm. And so the philosopher Luciano Ferridi, for example, has written very brilliantly, I think, about the ethics of information systems and made the fundamental point that you're looking for systems that are pro-ethical in their design. And by pro-ethical, he simply means that they're designed in a way that helps the people using them to make informed decisions. Mm. So, you know, when rather than having the default being that you opt into all kinds of spam email or the default being that you give away all your data... Instead, the default is that you get to answer some questions about your preferences and needs in a way that you understand that's sort of useful and practical. Um, I keep recommending people. Um, Carissa Velis has written a brilliant book called Privacy is Power, which, which talks um, about many of the ways in which privacy is kind of compromised today. Mm. But I think she makes also the fundamental point that privacy is not just don't take my data. Privacy is very closely linked to autonomy, to freedom, to citizenship, to rights, to a lot of the fundamental things that we need if we're going to make good decisions upon the basis of good evidence and be genuinely free to make them rather than be either overtly or covertly manipulated or compelled. And remember, we live in a world in which COVID has, you know, in China above all, but elsewhere also, ushered in whole new degrees of surveillance and monitoring mm. in the name of security and safety. Doing everything online has led to enormous amounts of incredibly illiberal and oppressive monitoring, even of students through remote proctoring and things like that in the US and beyond. And I think there is a really ethically important movement growing to push back against facial recognition and surveillance. 
and this all ties in to me with this idea of well you know what does it mean to have systems that support people's ability to to make good decisions to be free to be autonomous to not be subject to various kinds of bias discrimination and kind of if you like algorithmic oppression which is a very extreme way of putting it but actually i think it's all too real. There's a lot of assumptions baked into the systems we use. Mm. And unless we can scrutinise and push back against them, they have the capacity, sometimes by accident rather than by design, to become you know, really deeply oppressive. So given that quite extraordinary possible future that I think you maybe implicitly point towards there, what are your hopes and fears for this moment about where we potentially go to next? My hope is, among other things, that we get better as societies at, if you like, defending liberal values and certain democratic freedoms as part and parcel of a kind of information landscape, that we see the ways in which the systems we build and the tools we use enact certain fundamental beliefs about what people are entitled to in terms of treatment and what they're entitled to be free from in terms of surveillance, in terms of the presumptions kind of forced onto them by databases in terms of the presumptions baked into machine learning systems. And the world is becoming very profoundly divided along these lines. You know, many parts of the world are going down a deeply illiberal path. Mm. And I see that's good signs, you know, in, in some of the laws being passed in Europe, in the way in which facial recognition systems are being resisted in law in America, and the ways in which a lot of inscrutable systems are being called out in terms of justice and bias and accountability, that, that these links are being made. And of course, you know, again, if this pandemic has done one thing, it's emphasised that sitting on your computer at home is not a kind of separate private activity from the world of work and society and so on. That actually the way in which your life is mediated in the information realm is just a really fundamental part of your citizenship and your belonging. And working from home is a very different phrase for someone like me who's got a fast internet connection and a dedicated room where they can sit in a computer and work and someone who has got perhaps only a phone and a crummy internet connection mm. and a crowded room where they're trying to look after a child or a parent or, or, or live most of their lives or someone who used to rely on going to a library for the internet, or someone who has a low level of technical literacy or confidence and so on, mm. you, you suddenly realise that this technology is interwoven with the fabric of society. The questions aren't separate questions. The question of what we want from technology, ethically, of what we owe to its users, of what we need to resist, all, all these, I think, really, hopefully, come into focus. And And I would like to think that there is a a liberal and progressive agenda there that at least in some parts of the world can be can be defended. Mm. I love that vision that you paint. It gives me something to be optimistic about. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm trying. Optimism is a strategy. Yeah. Prophecies are sometimes, if not self-fulfilling, then they're visions of possible futures. So, you know, it's, it's perhaps it's quite important to have some bits of a future worth believing in. I think so. And I think also having examples and case studies of of real change and progress that's being made so that we can feel that there is a possible future that does centre itself or base itself in rights that people have fought and died to secure. So the right to privacy, the right to 
freedom of speech, etc., uh, and that we don't just allow these things to just quietly be eroded away in the name of ease and convenience and virtually delivered education, food, products, all of the stuff that we're seeing happening now. I mean, there has to be some kind of conversation about what a useful and moral or ethical balance looks like in that future scenario. Yeah, no, absolutely. Mm. So I'm curious, before we close, I'd love to hear if there is a book that has most captivated your imagination in recent months and maybe why. Deary me, that's a dangerous one. <laughs> I mean, I've been busy writing books, so it's quite hard. Uh-huh. It's quite hard to... Um, when I'm writing, I don't read a lot uh-huh. um, because I only have room in my head for a certain amount of words. Uh-huh. I mentioned Robert Poynton's book, Do pause which i've reread i know rob so i'm kind of plugging a book by someone i know but i reread it over the last year with my wife who's who's interested very interested in well-being and it really spoke to me and rob is very interested in improvisation and in improvisation as a way of thinking about how we act on a day-to-day basis, how, you know, most of our interactions with others are, of course, improvised, they're not scripted. Mm. So what does it mean to be more mindful of the pauses and spaces and possibilities in our lives? I read it in parallel with, with Pippa Evans's new book about improvisation. And for some reason, those, those themes of kind of pausing and thinking have just felt very fresh to me over the last year, perhaps because they're about surfacing the kind of under-considered assumptions that can govern the way you speak and interact and conduct yourself in daily life. There's an enormous amount to be said for auditing your daily habits <laughs> in the sense of, you know, taking stock of what it is you regularly do and asking, well, does it serve me? Or do I need to put myself in a different situation in order to be a better version of me? Willpower is definitely overrated you know that's a potted lesson from the social science literature if you want to get changed if you want to make changes in your life if you want to do things for goodness sake don't rely on willpower set up your life and habits and routines in a way that allows you to be your kind of better self Mm. think about your good habits and so I, i guess that's a couple of books and themes um that i've that i've found sort of circling in my head and cross-fertilizing with other themes in interesting ways. So thinking about that, and it sounds to me like the the theme between improvisation and pausing and finding new habits is really what is the best self that I would like to be? If in an ideal scenario, how would I like to show up in the world? Pulling on that thread, what question would you like people to sit with in this moment? The question would be, what do you regularly do that helps you be your best? And how could you do more of it? And how would you answer that question? For me, you know, in a weird way, it's reading books, actually. <laughs> uh, I just said that, you know, I don't read as much as I might like when I'm, when I'm writing. But actually making the time to, to get lost in a good book, really any book, I, you know, reading very eccentrically, <laughs> uh, that's often when, you know, best ideas come to me. And when I'm taken out of myself, when, when, when I can get over myself a bit, I ought to do that more, and I probably ought to play slightly fewer video games, although I love video games. (laughs) Brilliant. Well, Tom, it's been such a pleasure 
exploring these questions with you. Thank you so much for your candor and your generosity. And um, if people want to check out this book and your other works, where's the best place for them to find you? I would say just Google how to think and my name, go onto the Sage Publishing or Amazon or other bookseller websites. And um, yeah, drop me a line, check me out, have a look. And, um, and hopefully you will find how to think or its attendant titles of some interest. But um, thank you very much indeed. Thank you for listening to The Hive Podcast with me, Natalie Nahai. If you enjoyed the show, please do give it a rating and review as it helps to reach new ears. And for more information, you can visit natalienahai.com forward slash The Hive Podcast or reach out to me on Twitter at Natalie Nahai. My thanks to Caro C for producing. Thank you for listening. And I look forward to sharing more with you in the next episode.